Except for the times when my... Did I start recording yet? I don't have the ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything. After all, I'm just a schnook. Well, here we are. So glad you could join me for uh, this long-delayed chapter 42 of Autobiography of a Schnook, and I am the schnook in the title. I'm Sean, and uh, thank you for listening to some guy just talk about himself, some guy nobody's ever heard of. Well, unless you listen to a couple of very, uh, very niche podcasts. But here I am, back, and uh, better than before, or worse than before, or the same as before. I don't know. I don't know. Well, this episode was delayed for quite a few reasons. For one, I was trying to gather my thoughts on uh, what to talk about. And rather than try to rush it, I decided to take my time. Hey, nobody's paying me to do this, so why give myself a deadline? Why not just take my time and record and publish when I'm ready? Right? Right. I know all the self-proclaimed podcast experts say, come up with a schedule and stick with it. Easier said than done when it's not your full-time job. (laughs) Also, a rather unfortunate thing happened to me. I caught a cold that decided to hang around for three weeks. And it's only now, um, three and a half weeks in, that I can actually talk for an extended time without having to take a cough break or having to sneeze. You might hear a little bit of stuffiness in my voice uh, during this and two of the three segments. Yeah, doing three segments this episode. So if you do, it's because of that leftover cold. What It's clinging to life desperately. In fact, I think it might even be post-nasal drip at this point. I'm pretty sure I did not have COVID. I took a couple of COVID tests and passed them with flying colors. It just felt like a really nasty cold. And let me tell you something. Oh my goodness. This is the first time I've been sick since the pandemic happened. The last time I was sick was sometime during 2019 or even earlier. And when you've gone that long without being sick and you get the first even minor illness, oh my goodness, it wipes you out. It wipes you out. It's it's nasty. I was freaking miserable for an entire week. And then less miserable the second week, Less miserable the third week, and when I started to enter the fourth week, which is when I'm recording this little part of the episode, I feel no misery at all. None at all. I I still feel a little bit of residual effects, if you will, but that's about it. Who did not get sick? My wife, Lisa, who lives with me in an apartment and shares a bed with me every night. She didn't get sick at all. I asked her, how did you manage to not catch whatever I had? She said, I work in a germ factory. When you've been working in a public high school as long as I've been, you build up immunity to just about everything. (laughs) Oh, boy. So, yeah, even with summers off and immunity to nasty diseases, I still don't want to be a teacher. No way. No way. (laughs) I just want to do a freaking podcast, and that's why I'm here, my friends. Lots happened to me in between now and the time I last spoke. You'll hear about some of it. 
of course, in that time, because I'm the person that I am, I got a bunch of new records. Uh, what I want to do, I oh, what I'd love to do is see if there's a way that I can take advantage of the API for discogs.com. If you don't know what an API is, don't worry about it. Don't don't even try to think about it. So that anytime I add a record to discogs.com in, in my collection, it'll show up on the schnookpodcast.com website. That'd be amazing if I could do that. I think it could be done. So that way you could just say, hey, here's the la- latest record that I bought. <laughs> I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but I love listening to records. Love listening to music, period. But uh, it's really special when it's on vinyl and you have a good playback system. And suddenly you can't remember most of everything else that happened since uh, Chapter 41 came out. But one of the things I did over the summer, Lisa and I took a trip to California. We spent a few days in Los Angeles, and then we spent a few days in San Diego. And that, plus a couple of other things that I did over the summer, kind of prompted me to explore my thoughts on the state of California. So this first segment I'm going to call a schnook, and the California myth. Manifest destiny, the gold rush, better weather and job opportunities, becoming a star. Fleeing to the golden state has been a dream and often a reality, seemingly for as long as the United States has existed. It's no surprise either. Think about what California has to offer snowy mountains in the northeast and sunny beaches in the southwest, a big chunk of the tech industry in Silicon Valley. And really, California is a beautiful state. Except for the times my wife Lisa and I drove to the California border when we were in Las Vegas, uh, just so we could say we drove to California. My first time ever in California was in September 2009, when we took a wedding anniversary trip to San Francisco. We went there just out of curiosity, really. There was no specific reason for us to go to that particular place, other than we'd never been there and just wanted to check it out. But when we got to San Francisco, and no, we did not wear flowers in our hair, so don't ask. It was like no other place we'd ever visited before. There was a classical beauty to the architecture and the scenery, with a touch of modernness downtown. In one part of the city, you have the hustle and bustle of the Embarcadero, and in other parts of town are the famous cable cars. San Francisco is a great city for getting around. If you don't want to walk or drive, there are plenty of mass transit options. Buses, streetcars, the BART train system, and of course the aforementioned cable cars. And the topography? (laughs) Wow. Lisa and I both lived our lives in relatively flat parts of the country. During that trip, we stayed downtown. While we were in our hotel room, I learned via Google Maps that the Cable Car Museum was just eight blocks away. Please, we live in Chicago. We walk all the time. We can just walk to the Cable Car Museum, I decide. (laughs) Except that uh, what Google Maps won't tell you is that, yeah, it's only eight short blocks, but those eight blocks are up a painfully steep hill. Some of the hills in the city are so steep that the sidewalks become a staircase, Literally. And I'm pretty sure that at least part of the walk to the museum involves stairs. Thirteen years later, Lisa still hasn't forgiven me for that walk. On our actual wedding anniversary, we went to Fisherman's Wharf, which is probably the most annoying tourist trap ever, but still with some amazing sights to see. 
a fog-covered bay, sea lions, and uh, if that's your thing, Alcatraz. You can hear about the time I toured there in Chapter 9 of this podcast, and in fact, you can hear all about San Francisco and my experiences there in said chapter. And, of course, the most beautiful sight in tourists, Fisherman's Wharf, an In-N-Out Burger. We've been to San Francisco many times since that 2009 trip and have visited just about every part of the city. Hate Ashbury still tries, uh, often successfully, to capitalize off its summer of love reputation while offering modern amenities for the youngsters who want to experience that summer of love spirit but in newer ways. The Castro District offers some good, honest, independent store shopping in a neighborhood that's so clean you're afraid to walk through it for fear of scuffing it up. From the grittiness of the tenderloin to the lush green grass of Mission Dolores Park and the cultural history of Chinatown, we've seen, if not all of the city, then a pretty sizable portion of it. And even though Lisa had been to Los Angeles as a kid, she never actually saw the Pacific Ocean. So, that was a high priority for that trip in 2009. Check out the Pacific. Following the advice of a friend, we took the Geary bus all the way until it ended in outer Richmond, and we stepped out to the most amazing view I'd ever seen, and one reason I will never be an atheist. The gorgeous Land's End to the right of us, and Ocean Beach directly ahead. Now, many say that Muir Woods is God's country. Now, don't get me wrong, during one of our San Francisco trips, we did take a side trip to Muir Woods, and it is quite lovely, but for me, the divinity is at Ocean Beach. Now, Ocean Beach, San Francisco is not a place you go to get a tan or go swimming. The water is much too cold and too dangerous for swimming. In fact, signs all over the place warn that people have lost their lives there. Because of the constant fog, it's almost always overcast, but there's something very profound about taking a walk up and down the enormous beach there and exploring the coves on the northern end of the beach. It did not take long for me to decide that San Francisco is probably the most beautiful city in this country, surpassing even my beloved Chicago. Well, except for the skyline. No other city's skyline beats Chicago's. But anyway, um, even in the bad parts of San Francisco, you're in for an amazing view. In 2016, we visited a more southern portion of California, specifically Los Angeles. I was looking forward to the trip despite thinking I would hate Los Angeles. A distant relative who lived there once told me, You should visit Los Angeles, but trust me, you do not want to live there. I've heard from more than one person who, after hearing about my turbulent relationship with New York City, tell me, You think New York's bad? (laughs) Try LA sometime. And all the things I've read about Los Angeles from those who knew it well. Drug addicts all over the place. There's nowhere to walk. Everybody's a phony. Quite a contrast to the Los Angeles that, say, the Beach Boys wanted the world to know about. In fact, Brian Wilson's 2008 solo album, That Lucky Old Son, is a concept album that glorifies the Los Angeles that has been romanticized since the film industry moved there from Chicago many decades ago. The streets are paved with stars, another Dodger blue sky, every girl the next Marilyn, every guy Errol Flynn. (laughs) Why, Brian Wilson even made the chop shops in East L.A. sound dreamy. Well, how about when Lisa and I visited L.A. in 2016? Actually, I found it to be exactly like that Southern California described in That Lucky Old Son. 
Such a beautiful and exciting place to be. Beautiful sunsets at Venice Beach, with a bike-friendly oceanfront in nearby Santa Monica. Paradise Cove in Malibu lives up to its name, and the clam chowder in their restaurant is the best soup ever made. For crying out loud, I even enjoyed Hollywood Boulevard. It wasn't nearly as seedy as I had always heard people say it was. I mean, don't get me wrong, it is a little seedy and it's extremely touristy. Uh, Basically, if you've ever been to Times Square, imagine that, but with a lot of Valium. But it's so easy to get caught up in the celebrité of the stars embedded in the Walk of Fame. And the Hollywood Bowl, oh sweet Jesus, the Hollywood Bowl, what an amazing venue to take in a concert. My overall feeling of Los Angeles was Brian Wilson effing nailed it with that lucky old son. The following year, we decided to check out one more major California city that had a Spanish name in it, San Diego. Lisa had learned that there's a place there called Ocean Beach. She had grown up knowing a place in New Jersey called Ocean Beach, which is where her grandmother lived, and of course she had been to the Ocean Beach in San Francisco and loved it, so why not go to another Ocean Beach? Long story short, we loved it, especially Lisa. It's basically like Haight-Ashbury, but with, uh, without the Summer of Love vibe to it, and it's also only about a 10-minute drive from the airport. Over the years, we've been up and down all of coastal California. In 2015, we took a road trip from Portland, Oregon to San Francisco, with an overnight stop in, I believe, Eureka. In 2018, we road tripped from San Diego to San Francisco, and three years later, we did that same trip the other way, stopping for the night in Pismo Beach, which was just gorgeous, but uh, very touristy. In my travels through coastal California, I decided that California is probably the most beautiful state in our country. Uh, This coming from a guy who's admittedly only been to 27 of those states, by the way. We like to take a trip every summer. This past summer, 2022 for those of you listening in the future, in early August we flew to Los Angeles again. We spent a few days in Hollywood and then drove to Ocean Beach, San Diego and spent a few days there. Again, we had a great time in LA. We saw some things we wanted to see in 2016 but didn't have enough time. And because we're those kind of people, we drove to where Brian Wilson lived on Laurel Way during his most creative period. We went to the Beverly Glen Deli for lunch, and I'm not going to pretend that one of the reasons we went was not because Brian Wilson goes there almost every day. We went record shopping at Amoeba Music, which is a cool place, but I prefer the Haight-Ashbury location personally. And we had dinner at Cantor's Deli in the Fairfax District. We visited the Los Angeles County Fire Museum in Bellflower to check out Engine 51, followed by a side trip to the fire station used for the establishing shots in the TV show Emergency, and then lunch in Burbank at Bob's Big Boy, where we met up with a longtime listener of Pie Factory Podcast. (laughs) Had to get that plug in there. Every day ended with relaxation in the hot tub at the hotel and a dip in the pool. San Diego was basically my time to totally relax. We basically just chilled at the beach right across the street from our hotel. Speaking of which, the reason we went to San Diego was that Lisa said she wanted to go back to L.A. to do some things we didn't do before, and while we were at it, she wanted to make sure we could get some beach time in and maybe scout out somewhere in Venice where we could drive to. And that's when I suggested, why don't we just include Ocean Beach as part of our vacation? Getting around L.A. is a pain in the butt. Finding parking near a beach is going to be even worse. San Diego is just a two-hour drive, and uh, turned out Lisa thought that was a brilliant idea. 
After all, she will never turn down a chance to go to OB. But having said that, during our relaxation time in Ocean Beach, I read a book called God Only Knows, the story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California Myth, written by David Leaf, who over the years had become one of Brian Wilson's best friends. That long-titled book was the third version of a book he wrote in 1978 called The Beach Boys and the California Myth, and then updated in 1985 under the much shorter title The Beach Boys. In those earlier editions of the book, Leaf talked about this thing called the California Myth, but in his latest version, he got into more detail as to what is involved in the California Myth, and reading what he had to say really felt like a punch to the gut. I mean, here I was in California reading some pretty damning things about the state. It wasn't a punch in the gut because it made me feel that I was wasting time by being in California, because, well, I most certainly did not feel that way. It was a punch in the gut because it was the truth, a difficult truth. David talked about all the things people don't realize about California because their third-person image of the state, especially the southern part, is clouded by all the fantasy and dreams around it. David Leaf really nailed the painful realities, much as Brian Wilson nailed that romantic vision of Los Angeles. Yes, Hollywood is a dream, but the fact is, nightmares are dreams too, and so many dreams are shattered there. And California in general? Earthquakes, landslides, droughts, massive fires. Reading that portion of David Leaf's book really made me think about my experiences in California. Yes, it was really cool to drive up and down the coast, but what did I see? Lots of dry rivers. In San Francisco, I saw a pretty sad homelessness problem, especially in the financial district. And in the hate, part of that summer of love charm is that there are people still hanging out in Golden Gate Park who probably first flocked there in June 1967 and just stayed there because they couldn't get back into regular society. Also in San Francisco, you'll see iron bars in the first floor windows of houses, implying that crime is a huge problem there. And, um, that's not even a new issue, either. Watch older movies set in San Francisco. Uh, the 1972 film What's Up Doc comes to mind. And you'll see that even then, houses all over the city had bars in their windows. And it's even worse now. When we were in San Francisco last summer, everywhere we went, including outside of the city, we were warned not to leave anything in the car because if there's anything in eyesight, somebody will break into the car and take whatever isn't tied down. When we were in Hollywood this summer, there was a very brief downpour, so brief and so small that when we got back to the hotel, the valet was shocked to see that our car was wet. But when we got back to the room and turned on the news, the focus of almost the entire broadcast was that brief rain shower, because in the L.A. area, the smallest amount of rain could spell disaster where the ecosystem is just not used to precipitation. Go to a store in California and just about anything you buy will come with a Prop 65 warning, telling you that the product may have been made with or near substances that might be carcinogenic. Because of the car culture in California, motor vehicular traffic is a massive problem in terms of both getting places in a reasonable time and having breathable air. That car culture is also reflected in how in Los Angeles, the second largest city in the United States, painful paucity of public transportation. 
And most recently, just a day or two before I'm recording this, I heard a story about how California might be running out of water in the next several weeks. Ooh. Once again, I have to call out one of my musical heroes, Brian Wilson, who often told of how when his father was a kid, his family lived in a tent on the beach when they moved from Kansas to California. Of course, the way Brian told it, it sounded pretty cool. I mean, who wouldn't want to live on the beach? He talked about it in his 2016 autobiography. His cousin and fellow beach boy, Mike Love, also published an autobiography in 2016 and talked about Murray Wilson and his sister Emily, Mike's mom, living in a tent. But Mike told the story with much more realism. Buddy and Edith Wilson and their family didn't live on a tent on the beach because it was cool and romantic. They lived there because they had to. They couldn't get real housing. And their entire family, Buddy, Edith, and their eight kids, were all crammed into one tent. That was their initial reality of going west, my friends. And I have to say it, California is hella expensive. I mean, sure, it's pretty affordable to just visit once in a while, but check the rent prices out sometime, especially in San Francisco. And tell me how anybody is able to afford to live anywhere there. Apparently everybody has multiple roommates or something. Even the flag of California reflects a harsh reality, what with the presence in the design of a California grizzly, a species that is now extinct. Basically, California dreams can reveal a pretty sad reality. But another reality is that people do live there, and people do love it there. Many are lucky enough to be able to live under very fortunate circumstances, and many happen to find themselves in situations in which many of the harsh realities have no effect on them. But as for this schnook who loves to take trips to the Golden State, I'm able to not let the harsh truths get in the way of one of the truths that are not so harsh. And I'm also wise enough to know how lucky I am, how blessed I am, that when vacation is over, I get to go home to a place that I love dearly. Now, what I just said in this little segment of the episode was uh, a little harsh, but the truth is I'm really looking forward to going back to California. In fact, uh, Lisa and I have a trip booked for January because her winter break happens to end late. And she said, why don't we go to San Diego for a few days in January and uh, you can just work. And I said, I don't mind working in San Diego. Not at all, especially because uh, my work day, because of the time zone difference will be over by three and I'll have all that day left. So I'm really excited about that. Don't have to dig into my paid time off for that. And uh, speaking of paid time off, uh, shortly after we got back from California, some strange things happened, and um, I guess I might as well talk about that right now in a segment I'm going to call, Should I Have Spent More Time at the Office? I guess I didn't have any real reason to complain about my job in and of itself. Good pay, good time off package, generous 401k matching, very supportive team, half-day Fridays, a lot of attention to mental health, and remote work. Yet, I was not happy. I didn't know what to do. Should I look for another job, or should I stay where I am, what with all the fringe benefits? 
I talked about it with a few managers and some other folks on my team. Everybody lent a sympathetic ear and assured me that things would be okay. Lisa encouraged me to stick it out as long as I could, but I told her if things did not improve by the 1st of January, I'd be looking for a new job. Things got so bad once that I told my team, I need to take a sick day tomorrow, friends. I'm not okay. The others on my team were always very supportive, so I felt comfortable saying that much. Almost immediately, nearly half the team responded to me. Take whatever time you need. It's okay. You need to take care of yourself. We'll help you in any way possible. And Craig, who for a short time was my manager but had been promoted several times, also chimed in. Take a break. Just know that you're doing great. I needed a day to myself to just clear my head and to try to figure things out. One of the benefits that goes along with the company's support of mental health the Employee Assistance Program, which included private counseling. So I made an appointment with a counselor and laid it all out how miserable I was, but I didn't want to leave the company. Word must have gotten out to other folks, too, because Monica, our HR rep, asked to talk with me. Now, Monica isn't her real name, and uh, Craig wasn't his real name, but you know how it is, protection and all that. But basically, Monica was checking in on me, making sure I was okay, I told her the same things I told the counselor about how miserable I was, yet I didn't want to leave the company. As a software engineer specializing in one particular programming language, I was asked, would you mind working with other languages? I said, well, of course I wouldn't mind. But basically, Monica's overall message to me was, we don't want to lose you. For the past year, there had been so many changes, so many moves from one team to another, and a seeming revolving door of managers two of whom I literally never even met. And each manager had different guidance for me, so much to the point that I literally did not know what to do. And sometimes I wasn't even really sure what my actual job was anymore. As a website developer, it was very jarring to be taken off the website and be moved to a team that didn't work on the website at all, but worked with back-end technologies that I'd never even heard of and languages I'd never been exposed to. For a long time, it was that if there was the slightest change, we'd all be trained on the new stuff. This time, there was no training but basically baptism by fire, with no time to Google what I needed to know or to take a LinkedIn learning class. I guess it blindsided me when, at the end of August, a meeting suddenly came up on my calendar for my annual review with Craig. Well, I found it strange that Craig called this meeting with me because he wasn't my manager. In fact... Even when Craig was my manager, we hardly ever talked, and all he really knew about me was that I loved to write code. How did he know? Well, because I told him that. And it's true, by the way, I love to write code. <clears throat> really, it was strange, because Craig wasn't my manager. He was my manager's manager's manager at this point. And it especially blindsided me when my review seemed kind of ominous. It seemed negative, which was new for me. I never got any kind of review like that my whole life. Why was it ominous? Well, quite simply because he said, First of all, in terms of company culture, you're at the ideal level here. You're the nicest guy in the world. <laughs> that kind of blindsided me, too, because nobody ever told me that, not even my wonderful wife. And I'm not saying that sarcastically. She really is wonderful. She actually never told me that before. <laughs> I brought that up to her. She said, Well, you are a nice guy. <laughs> and then the next thing he said was, I'm going to have you talk with Monica because you're going to be exiting this company. Immediately, my heart sank. 
Now, I needed some clarification because we had a parent company. My company was one of several brands covered by the parent company. I said, um, Craig, by exiting the company, do you mean I'm going to be moved to another brand? And he said, well, that's the goal. He said, whatever happens, I promise you, it's going to be a soft landing. You're going to be okay. But still, it just felt weird. I felt like I was getting fired from, uh, well, let's just call the company Big Jim's Online Ordering Site. That's the brand that employed me. Uh, I might have mentioned it before under a different name, but just go with this name for now, okay? <laughs> but thinking back to when Craig told me, you're the nicest guy in the world, <laughs> it made me think of that season four episode of The Office. I think it was called The Deposition. David Wallace's deposition referred to Michael Scott as a nice guy, which uh, clearly moved Michael. It's weird when someone says that about you because, well, it feels strangely good even under not the greatest circumstances. But here I was, feeling almost ill from hearing all this. Not so much that it sounded like I was losing my job, but also that I was going to be leaving my team. Because I had some great teammates. I really did. They were all amazing. They were all very supportive. I sent Monica a message, simply saying that Craig and I had talked. She said, well, let's set up a time to meet. Uh, I believe it was for two days after that. In the meantime, I messaged a coworker that I'd met during a self-awareness training a few weeks before. Dora, um, again, that's not her real name, heard me talk about how I just wasn't in a good place. She messaged me privately and said, you've got this. She told me I could reach out to her anytime, so I took her up on that offer. I messaged Dora and I said, hey Dora, remember how you told me I've got this? Well, evidently I don't. And I told her what was going down. In the end, she told me, well, don't wait for two days to talk with Monica. I know Monica. She's no bullshitter. She'll tell you everything that's going on. You need to talk to her right away. That same day, I had an appointment with the counselor. As with Dora, I told Anna, uh, believe it or not, that is also not her real name. I told Anna what was happening, that I got this weirdly, seemingly bad annual review that came out of nowhere with a few assertions that just didn't really make logical sense. That I had been feeling I was in a really bad place. That the constant stream of changing managers left me with no direction. That multiple times I reached out for help. That I wanted to stay with the company, but at the same time, I didn't know what the hell to do. And now it looks like I'm getting fired. Anna advised me to document each time I reached out for help, talked to a manager, talked to Monica, and what was discussed in each conversation. Thankfully, with each of these meetings, I did have a record on my calendar, so I could document the dates and times. I put together a summary of each so that I could be fully prepared when I talked to Monica and defend myself. And just as Dora did, Anna told me, don't wait for two days to talk to Monica. Talk to her now so that you know exactly what's going on. And if for no other reason, I wouldn't be awake all night not knowing what my fate was. And uh, both Dora and Anna told me to let them know how things worked out. So, I instant messaged Monica. I said, can we talk today? So, she put some time on my calendar for later in the afternoon. I was ready with my defenses written down. That I reached out for help, including to Monica herself. But without re-reiterating things too much, the conversation took a turn that I totally didn't expect. She said, so as you probably know, Craig and I talked about the situation. And before I could even say a word in my defense, Monica explained how basically things were moving much faster than anybody had expected. 
Things have turned a corner, she explained, and the technologies that I had been using for years at the company were as good as gone, and there wasn't enough time to get people trained up on the new systems and the new languages, that it made more sense just to hire people who already knew them and could hit the ground running. And um, indeed, that was happening. I saw it happen with my own eyes, personally. I was indeed being dismissed, but because my position was being eliminated, not because of performance. Monica added, everybody here loves you. In fact, she said that if a position in the parent company opened up that I'd be interested in, because of my good record with the company, I'd be given highest priority for an interview. But in the meantime, there weren't any openings that would suit my experience at the moment, so they had no choice but to offer me what the legal department considered a generous severance package. I would be on the payroll for another month, but effective immediately, I did not have to do another bit of work, but instead I'd get paid to just basically take a break, look for a job, watch TV, whatever I wanted to do. On top of that, at the end of the first quarter of 2023, I'd still be getting the bonus from the company's performance of fiscal year 2022. I was stunned. My response was simply, well, yes, I agree, that is pretty freaking generous. Suddenly, I felt I had no reason to put up a defense. And in fact, not only did I feel that, but that was the reality. Nothing needed to be defended. I felt that I was making out like a bandit, actually. I did bring up one concern, though. I was in the middle of a pretty large CMS documentation project that I really wanted to finish. It was desperately needed. Monica said, why? Seriously, you don't need to do any more. Just let whatever happens happen. You're fine. But the thing is, I honestly really did want to finish that documentation. Many people expressed wanting that thing done so they knew how to use the CMS. So it became an official project on my plate. And trust me, about 99% of my coworkers were lost not having it. And where would they be now that the go-to guy for CMS help was no longer part of the company? But hey, if they're really giving me the green light to abandon it, then fine. I called Dora and I told her what was happening. She said what happened was probably exactly what I needed, and um, I agreed with her. She said, good luck with your new job. I reminded her I didn't have one yet, but she said, you don't understand. I'm willing it that you're going to get a new job soon. And uh, because I was on the payroll for another month, that meant that I still had access to all the benefits, including private counseling, so I scheduled a few more appointments with Anna. When Lisa got home, I told her what was going on and how I actually felt much better. She said, that's fine, and it's great that you're getting a really nice severance package, but you are to find a job as soon as possible. I don't want you to spend the entire day cleaning records and playing video games for the next several months. We could use that extra money to pay down some more debt. I reminded her that the previous times I was laid off, she would come home from work to a clean apartment. I said, wouldn't you like that? And she said, well, okay, yeah, but you still need to look for a job. When I got the okay from HR, I sent out a farewell email to my team. Several of my coworkers were surprised, saying they'd swear I was in it for life. Truth is, I was hoping to stick it out long enough for my 10-year anniversary because, well, on your 10-year anniversary at Big Jim's, you're granted an additional week of time off. I messaged a couple of people who had already left the company and told them I was laid off. One responded saying, I'm not surprised. Indeed, he did see it coming when he was let go as well. Whatever the case, though, I was relieved. And honestly, I have no hard feelings about Big Jim's. If someone were to ask me about Big Jim's as a place to work, I'd highly recommend it. But as for me, my time had come. Does that mean I'll never go back? You never know. 
HR had arranged with me to meet with a job search coach, a benefit provided only to those employees who were dismissed on good terms. I had a three-hour session with a coach. In the meantime, I applied for web development jobs left and right and uh, wasn't really getting much response back despite nearly 10 years of professional experience. A recruiter had set me up with a trio of online interviews at a company uh, whom I'll call Aunt Judy's Online Catalog looking for PHP developers, uh, PHP being my language of expertise. The second interview with Aunt Judy's was a beast, though. Oh, man, the software architect was quizzing me on features of PHP that, um, despite using the language for 20 years, I've never actually needed to use, either professionally or personally. It was almost as if the guy liked to use these features just for the sake of using them. He also asked me about some relatively obscure SQL functionality. Uh, those of you who don't know what SQL is, it is a language to handle databases, basically. And even the most basic questions he asked, he didn't like my answers. For example, he asked me a question that I think I've been asked in every software development interview I've ever had. What is an abstract class, and how is it different from an interface? I answered, well, they're not the same at all. An interface is not a class, but a definition of what methods you absolutely must implement in any class that uses that interface. An abstract class is a class that you don't actually instantiate, but it exists for the sole purpose of spawning child classes. For example, you might have a class called Animal that has features that are common to all animals, how they breathe, senses, ways of moving, etc. But rather than instantiate that big animal class, you're going to want to instantiate more specific classes that have those properties that all animals have, but also have their own special properties unique to them. For example, you might want to have a dog class that implements everything the animal class is, such as breathing senses, ways of moving, etc. But it also has features that are unique to dogs, such as tail wagging, fur length, and other such features. And you might also want a fish class that has its own unique features, such as gills, scales, fins, etc. Um, by the way, dear listener, if you're not a programmer and you don't understand what all I said, trust me, it is correct. But the software architect didn't like that answer. He said, well, I asked you what the difference was between the two, but here's what you actually said. Oh, shut up, it's right. The last question he asked me was, Let's say you have a jar of magic worms, and they reproduce every second, and every new worm that spawns also has that property. And let's say that it takes the jar 60 seconds to fill to max capacity. At what point is that jar one quarter full? I gotta tell you folks, um, that one completely threw me off because I was still thinking in PHP language, but he tossed me this logic puzzler and I couldn't answer it until he gave me a couple of hints, at which point I literally slapped myself in the head. Now, something that job search experts often tell you is that when you're in a job interview and the interviewer asks you if you have any questions, that you should ask something along the lines of, what concerns do you have about me? So, I did. But I prefaced that question by saying, look, I'm not an idiot. I can clearly see that I was unable to answer a lot of your questions to your satisfaction. So what concerns do you have about me? He said, well, I don't want to say that you necessarily worked for a bad company because I just plain don't know. But I do want to say that it's a shame they didn't give you the opportunity to learn a lot. Ouch. Interestingly, when I went through the job search coaching session, when the coach covered the part of the interview when you asked questions, this question was not among the ones they said you should ask. But regardless, for various reasons, I felt that if I were offered this job, I don't think I'd want it anyway, for reasons I'm not going to get into right now. 
I'm not saying I wouldn't recommend it to anybody else, but for me personally, I don't think I would have been a good fit. And the word from the recruiter was that uh, the company agreed with me. In the meantime, it occurred to me that I should reach out to the recruiting firm that nearly 10 years prior had set me up with Big Jim's online ordering site. So I called them, and they hooked me up with a recruiter who specializes in placing PHP developers. He told me about a client right here in Chicago that he had. Uh, let's just call him Little Danny's Online Tracking Software. And this client had just posted an opening for a remote PHP engineer. I forwarded my resume to the recruiter, and almost immediately he had me set up with an online interview. And wouldn't you know it, one of the questions the interviewer asked me, what's the difference between an abstract class and an interface? I answered, well, they're not the same at all. An interface is not a class, but a definition of what methods you absolutely must implement in any class that uses that interface. An abstract class is a class that you don't actually instantiate, but it exists for the sole purpose of spawning child classes. For example, you might have a class called Animal that has features that are common to all animals, how they breathe, senses, ways of moving, etc. But rather than instantiate that big animal class, you're going to want to instantiate more specific classes that have those properties that all animals have, but also have their own special properties unique to them. For example, you might want to have a dog class that implements everything the animal class is, such as breathing, senses, ways of moving, etc. But it also has features that are unique to dogs, such as tail wagging, fur length, and other such features. And you might also want a fish class that has its own unique features, such as gills, scales, fins, etc. Well, this interviewer's response was, exactly. <laughs> Overall, it was a very pleasant interview, and I felt very comfortable. Later that day, my recruiter let me know they wanted me to move on to the next step, which was a programming exercise. I spent the entire weekend going over that relatively simple exercise, making sure that the code worked like a charm, I went a bit overboard with unit tests, and I tried every conceivable way I could to get the program to crash, within the limitations of the assumptions I had to provide, of course. I sent my code over to Little Danny's, and the recruiter again followed up with me and said they wanted to follow up with not one, not two, but five online interviews. Yikes. Well, I gotta do it. I checked back in with Anna to let her know how things were going, and I told her that I was nervous as all hell. She said, why? This is stuff that you know. And remember, as much as these interviews are to see if you're a good fit for the company, it's also for you to see if the company is a good fit for you. Anna was right, of course. And all I could do was just go through and do those five interviews. I'll tell you, friends, I was so uptight going into that day knowing that several hours would be blocked off so a company could see if I could code well enough for their needs. The interviews all had their own focuses. One was essentially about how I deal with coworkers, disagreements, differences of opinion, things like that. Another was what they called a whiteboarding exercise, meaning that they give you a certain problem and you had to write code to solve it. For example, when I interviewed for Big Jim's online ordering site, my whiteboarding exercise was to write code that could check a tic-tac-toe board for a victory. Another interview that I had with this new company was specifically to see if I fit the company culture. Four interviews in, and I felt I was actually doing pretty well. Even if I weren't doing so hot, at least every single person I talked to was just plain cool as hell. Um, I guess as cool as hell could get. Um, from what I'm told, it's uh, pretty warm down there. But seriously, everybody made me feel very comfortable. And in fact, during the company culture interview, which involved talking to four other people, I mentioned how great everybody was treating me, and one of the people in the, uh, the call said, well, we know that our interview process is pretty grueling, so we try to make it as tolerable as possible. The last interview was to review the code that I submitted for the programming exercise. Basically, it boiled down to this. If you had more time to do this exercise, what improvements would you make? 
I also had to demo the code in action. I actually put the code on an actual website so it could actually be run in an actual web browser, and I'm saying this just so I can actually see how many times I can use the word actual or some of its other actual forms in one actual sentence. So I pulled it up in a web browser and it did not run. My interviewers laughed and said, that always happens whenever you want to show somebody your software, it just doesn't work. I did manage to finagle it in another computer, though, but still, I thought for sure that uh, this particular interview blew it for me. And what a shame, too. I'd really love to work with these folks. But when it was all over, I exhaled, emailed my recruiter to tell him everything was done, and I sent a thank you email to the first interviewer, because I had his email address. I didn't have any contact information for anybody else. Later that evening, around 10 o'clock, Lisa and I took the dog for her nightly walk, and for God knows what reason, when we got back in, I decided to check my email, and there was a message from my recruiter who said, Great news! Little Danny's online tracking software wants to make you an offer. He called me the next morning, a Friday, and said they still wanted to interview one more candidate, that is, unless I accept the offer. I told him, I accept, I accept! Furthermore, I said, By the way, Monday is my birthday, which was true, that Monday was my birthday, so this was a nice early birthday present. He needed to check my references, though, and I had to submit to a background check. I still had access to Big Jim's systems, so I logged into my Big Jim's Microsoft Teams account, and I frantically messaged a few people to ask if they'd provide me a good reference. I got their details, forwarded them to my recruiter, and uh, it took a while for him to get a response from them, though. That, plus the time it would take to get my background check, delayed my start date a week, but that was fine. I was hoping to take some time to decompress. I mean... It's often said that looking for a job is a full-time job, and holy God, it sure was. The search was busy. The search was stressful. It ate up hours upon hours of every day. Plus, Monica had set me up with a financial planning team, uh, another benefit they extend to employees dismissed on good terms, and I didn't want to have to cancel that appointment and hope they could meet outside of work hours. Remember how I said I was quite nervous in the days leading up to my five follow-up interviews? Well, I was even nervous. (sighs) Red line, go away. Nervouser is a word. I was even nervouser in the days leading up to my first day at my new job. Well, that's how nervous I was. I actually said nervouser instead of more nervous. But anyway, I mean, my imposter syndrome was at an all-time high. What if I take too long to do my work? What if I'm not up to the standards that Little Danny's online tracking software expects? Never mind that I'd been doing the work professionally for nearly 10 years, and that a total of six interviews and a programming exercise determined that I was the best out of four potential candidates, if uh, what my recruiter told me was accurate. And all that cleaning I wanted to do in the apartment, all I managed to get done was cleaning a few sets of blinds. The panic setting in. Holy cow, what am I going to do? I guess I was going to do what I could do. Report to work, try my best, and get paid for it. My total time of not working between the day Monica told me I no longer had to do any work to my start date at my new job, a month and a half. Actual time off the company's payroll, two weeks. Any way you slice it, it was my shortest time without a job in over two decades. And hopefully I won't have to lose a job again. And if I do... Hopefully my time without a job will be just as short, if not shorter. But whatever the case, in early 2013, 
I managed to make a team of developers believe that I was the right candidate, and that company held on to me until the end of 2022. And once again, I managed to make an entire team think that I was the right candidate. Who knows? Maybe I'm not an imposter after all. Maybe I am a real software engineer. Hey, remember how I said that I had a cold? Well, that cold started the Saturday before my start date at my new job, and it really came to a peak the Tuesday of my new job. Thankfully, it was a remote job, but I was so miserable. That Tuesday, probably around noon or one o'clock, I was thinking of messaging my boss and saying, man, I I just can't do it. I got to end early today, but I figured, no, it's only my second day. I better stick it out. But so far, it's been about a month into my new job, give or take, and it is complicated. It is so so much stuff involved that is way more complicated than anything I've ever been used to. And remember how I said before that my imposter syndrome was at an all-time high? Well, it was even higher my first couple of weeks on the job at this new place. <laughs> uh, I did get a chance to meet face-to-face with some of my coworkers in person because I happened to start when uh, my company was doing its annual, what they call, retreat. So I actually went to the office for that rather than do it online. And I was telling people, man, I f- my my imposter syndrome is just skyrocketing. And everybody I said that to said the same thing. They said, yeah, everybody feels that way here when they first start out. In fact, um, my boss's boss even told me, give it at least six months before you're used to how things work here. <laughs> but really, I'm very happy where I am now. The people that I work with are just absolutely amazing. I mean, how great I thought they were when they interviewed me was nothing compared to how they are to work with. They're amazing. They practically fall all over each other to try to help everybody out. It's just freaking amazing. And uh, they know I'm a podcaster, but I don't think any of them know about this podcast. So it's not like I'm trying to lick anybody's boots here. I'm just stating as fact. I'm just very happy with my new job and I hope I'm there for a long time. Or if I'm not there for a long time, I hope that the reason I leave is because something fell in my lap that was even more amazing. But hey, it's been a month and I'm learning every day. And I'm feeling much more comfortable now than I was, say, two weeks ago. (laughs) And uh, what can I say? But I really love my new job. I'm very happy with it. But having said all that, in between the time that Lisa and I got back from California and the time that I was actually pretty ceremoniously dismissed from Big Jim's online ordering site. Lisa and I made a return trip for the first time in a long time as paying customers to the Fest for Beatles fans. You may remember that some time ago, I did an entire segment on that fan festival with uh, not only my wife Lisa, but also our friend Ferg. Well, I figured for this installment of Music for Schnooks, Just as I did in person, I will virtually revisit the Fest for Beatles fans in podcast form. Now, before I get into uh, the body, I guess, of this particular music segment here, I'm just going to disclaim that I do not have a script for this, just a few bullet points. So this is all coming just straight from my head. 
for whatever that's worth. Uh, kind of reminds me of that book that uh, Ron Nasty wrote called Out of Me Head. Uh, if you know, you know. But it is very fitting for this particular topic. August 12th through 14th of 2022 in Rosemont, Illinois, just outside of O'Hare Airport, just a mile down the road from it, was the Fest for Beatles fans. Now, during the pandemic, when everything was shut down, the Fest did not happen for two years. But I said to Lisa, I think that when things are safer and when the Fest happens again, we should probably go. It's been a long time. This might be a good way to celebrate that we made it that we came out unscathed, we should get together with other Beatles people and celebrate. And she said, I was thinking the same thing. Unfortunately, this time, we didn't meet up with the uh, friends we usually saw at the fest because we went on the 13th and 14th, Saturday and Sunday, but our friends only went Friday and they left that Saturday morning because there was a family wedding they had to go to. They were all either related or very, very close to each other outside of uh, family. So I just figured I'd run down how it was, what we experienced, and uh, all that good stuff. I don't think this is going to take nearly as long as the discussion that Lisa and I had with Ferg last time we discussed the Fest for Beatles fans. Now, just a quick uh, recap or precap, depending on your knowledge of this fan festival. The Fest for Beatles fans actually started in 1974 as a Beatles fan gathering called Beatlefest. It started in New York City. Uh, it's run by Mark and Carol Lapidos of New Jersey. Uh, it was started by the blessings of John Lennon because Mark Lapidos actually met John Lennon and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this fan festival. And John famously told him, I'm all for it. After all, I'm a Beatles fan too. And a typical Beatlefest, you would have talks and interviews given by people who are connected to the Beatles, people who wrote books about the Beatles. There's a marketplace where you could buy Beatles-related souvenirs and good stuff like that. There'd be the Battle of the Beatles bands, which would be exactly what that is. A bunch of bands would get up and perform, and the audience would vote for the best. Similar to that was what they call the Beatles Sound-Alike Contest, which would involve two or fewer people per group. Sound-Alike is a misnomer because it's not really a Sound-Alike contest per se. It's just a performance contest. Whoever the audience, pardon me, whomever the audience liked the best would be the winner. I do believe from talking to other people, though, that it used to be an actual Sound-Alike contest. You actually had to sound like a Beatle, or The Beatles, or whatever else you have. And one of the big unofficial activities every year, people would just gather around with their guitars or whatever instruments they might have just brought on their own, and just sing Beatles songs going into the wee-wee hours. I remember the first one of these that I was involved in in 1996. We were up till, I think, 4 a.m. playing until the hotel manager came over to us and said, guys, we really need you to stop now. <laughs> But it was always great fun. Thousands of people. I think in 1997, there were 10,000 attendees, official attendees, that is, those who didn't crash the gate. And uh, that was one of the biggest attendance numbers they ever had. Not the biggest. The biggest was in 2014 in New York City on the 50th anniversary of the Beatles landing in New York. This year, however, as has been in the past 
16 years or so, wasn't very well attended, not in the thousands that we were always used to before. It wasn't something we were not used to, though, because over the years we'd drop in just to visit our friends who attended and we'd see how rinky-dink it got, actually. And part of that is to blame, I think, on a new set of legal folks that became involved with the Beatles, because sometime around 2002, I think it was, this new legal team decided, number one, they wanted Mark Lapidos to relinquish his copyright ownership on the name Beetlefest. Number two, this new legal team did not want Mark to be calling it Beetlefest anymore because they felt that calling it Beetlefest would imply that this was officially sanctioned by the Beatles, which it was not. This is what I heard secondhand. I did not hear this from Mark himself. Don't quote me on this. I might be incorrect, but this is what I heard. So from that point on, Mark called it the Fest for Beatles fans. From what I'm told, Mark could have fought both successfully and retained his ownership on the Beetlefest trademark, and he could have still called it Beetlefest. But he did not want to bite the hand that fed him. Beetlefest slash the Fest for Beatles fans is the largest licensed distributor of Beatles product. So Mark figured, yeah, I better just not fight them, let them have what they want. I don't want this to bite me in the end. Also, a big feature of Beetlefest was all of the Beatles films would be shown in the main ballroom, A Hard Day's Night, Help, the TV special Magical Mystery Tour, Yellow Submarine, and Let It Be. Come 2002, when it became the Fest for Beatles fans, suddenly only A Hard Day's Night was shown in the ballroom, and the other four films were nowhere to be found. From what I was told, it was again thanks to the new group of uh, legal people at uh, Apple, the Beatles company, no longer allowing Mark to show those films. Why was he allowed to show A Hard Day's Night? Well, because the Beatles were not in control of that movie. They were in control of Help Through Let It Be, though. And I think from what I understand is that Mark and company were told either you're not allowed to show those films or you have to charge a separate admission for them and we get a little piece of the money. Again, that's secondhand knowledge. This year, however, 2022, none of those films were shown anywhere, not even in the video room they always had. I don't know what happened there. I don't know if Apple obtained control of A Hard Day's Night or what, but yeah, not even A Hard Day's Night. So that wasn't even a thing anymore. The marketplace, which used to be really, really huge, was tiny. It was basically just the fest having their own table and just a few other vendors. In fact, there were several records that were on my shopping list that I wanted to get. I figured, oh, I'll have no problem getting those in the, at the fest in the marketplace. Peter Asher was going to be a guest. I checked our collection. We didn't have any Peter and Gordon things. I felt I should get something for him to autograph. I thought we had a copy of World Without Love or something, but we didn't. I figured, no problem. My experience was that several vendors, whenever there was a special guest at the fest, they would have records by that person in case somebody wanted to get them autographed. Nope. In fact, there were only, I think, two or three vendors with used vinyl, or any vinyl, really, and none of them had any Peter and Gordon stuff. There were hardly any vendors, and from what I understand, it's simply that the vendors who usually showed up could no longer afford the vendor fees that they had to pay. So that's why the marketplace kept shrinking over the years. Now, one complaint that people usually had over the years was that if you wanted to hear a band perform outside of the Battle of the Bands, 
it would have to be the Fest for Beatles fans house band Liverpool. Which, from what I understand, back in the early days, they were a great sound-alike Beatles band. Now, they're just basically a band that does Beatles songs. I mean, I don't mean that to disparage them. They're a good band, and each one of the musicians is very talented on his own, absolutely. But it's just not like you're hearing the Beatles music performed live as it was if you were, say, watching a really good Beatles sound-alike band, like, say, British Export or American English. You're just watching four guys perform Beatles songs. So there were a lot of people complaining about that. But one thing that the fest added recently, probably within the last six or seven years, was in another room, a large room, they would have the so-called Apple Jam stage, which did have a rotating schedule of bands and solo performers. And that's really cool. So if you wanted to hear some Beatles songs performed live and you either didn't want to hear Liverpool or you didn't want to wait for Liverpool to perform, you could go to the Apple Jam stage and listen to the other bands perform. That might have been a response to another Beatles fan festival called Abbey Road on the River, which is pretty much nothing but bands performing Beatles songs. Uh, not necessarily always Beatles songs. Uh, we went to Abbey Road on the River in 2016. We had a great time. And they have pretty much the same crowd that Beatlefest used to have in its heyday. And we saw a lot of great bands performing Beatles songs, but we also saw a couple of bands doing other things. There was Sounds of Summer doing Beach Boys songs very well, too. And another band did the entire Tommy album, of all things. So we sat in on those. But getting back to the Fest for Beatles fans, we went to the Apple Jam stage and we saw some performers that we uh, really, really enjoyed, including longtime Beatlefest slash Fest for Beatles fan favorite Big D from Vincennes, Indiana, who simply performs with his 12-string guitar, but the way he makes his acoustic 12-string play, it's amazing. It's amazing. He would perform a day in the life, and you would swear you were hearing the orchestra the way that he performed. Another longtime favorite we saw was uh, a duo called Derek and the Daddio. Turned out that uh, they had not been going to the fest for the same years we had not been going to the fest. It just so happened that they picked the same year that Lisa and I picked to return. I don't remember if we talked about them the last time we talked about the fest, but uh, Derek and the Daddio, it's a father and son duo from Michigan. And uh, last time we saw them, Derek was in college. Well, now Derek is a father himself. He's married. He has a couple of kids. So Daddy-O is now a granddaddy. I think uh, Daddy-O's name is Mike. And I think he's since retired to Florida. But they would always do these really cool arrangements as a duet. I wish I could describe how they would do their songs, but they just came up with these mind-blowing arrangements with some really nice two-part harmony, and they did not disappoint this year as well. As usual, Terry Hemmert from WXRT, longtime Chicago radio host, was the MC, and it was wonderful to see her. One of the special guests was Peter Asher of Peter and Gordon, as I mentioned before. And uh, we had seen Peter and Gordon perform at the fest in 2006. Now, not that Lisa and I were ever really Peter and Gordon fans, but we watched them perform, and they were just absolutely fantastic. Unfortunately, Gordon is no longer with us. He uh, passed probably about 10 years ago, I think. Uh, I could stop and look it up, but eh, who has time these days? But we had tickets to see 
Peter Asher's solo show at the Old Town School of Folk Music last year, but out of nowhere was a Brian Wilson concert scheduled for that same day, so we sold our tickets to the Peter Asher show and went to see Brian instead, and we figured we should check out Peter Asher at the fest because maybe it's the same show that we missed when Brian Wilson was in town. So we sat in, and it was basically Peter Asher talking about his career in music. And it's clear from listening to him talk that he is very humbled to have been part of, in some way, the Beatles, because he lived with Paul McCartney, or more accurately, Paul McCartney lived with him when Paul was dating his sister Jane. He obviously felt very fortunate to be part of it all and also to be part of Apple Records. If you've never heard of Peter Asher before, or if you don't know of Peter and Gordon, one thing that you have Peter Asher to thank for, if you are a fan, is James Taylor. Peter Asher signed James Taylor to Apple Records when Apple Records was founded back in 1968, and he became James Taylor's manager, and James Taylor himself acknowledges Peter Asher a lot. But he put on a really good presentation, a slideshow. Uh, there is a video that he showed that was an absolute hoot. I don't remember what show it was. I think it was the Red Skelton show that he said that um, any performer who's on the Red Skelton show would be required to take part in a big group sing-along. And he said that if he had known what Peter and Gordon were going to have to do for that show ahead of time, they would have told their manager, count us out, we're not doing this show. I think the clip is on YouTube. If it is, I will put a link to it in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I do not blame them for not liking what they had to do. Uh, speaking of Peter and Gordon and uh, showing films and things, there were a couple of Gordon performances that Peter showed. Actually, there were Peter and Gordon performances, but just with Gordon's parts shown on the screen behind him, and he would sing along with it in harmony to kind of recreate a Peter and Gordon performance. I thought that was really cool. We saw his presentations on Saturday and Sunday because they were essentially part one and part two, and each of the presentations ended with an audience sing-along of World Without Love, and he would show the lyrics on the screen, and you would have to follow the bouncing Peter Asher head, kind of like the old sing-along with Mitch show. So I wait. I do have video of that. I will try to post that as well and put that also on schnookpodcast.com. But it was a fun presentation both days in a row. And after the Saturday performance, we saw Peter at his autograph table and we asked him, hey, was this the same show that we missed at the Old Town School of Folk Music? And he said, yeah, it pretty much is, except this one was updated. So you're seeing something, something newer than you would have seen last year. So we said, cool. Beatles author Bruce Spizer, who is one of our favorite guests, was there as well. He did a presentation on Magical Mystery Tour, the not very highly regarded... Oh, actually, no, it wasn't Magical Mystery Tour. I think it was about 1967 and 1968 in general. So he covered Magical Mystery Tour and Yellow Submarine. He gave a great presentation, and one thing that I never knew is that he told us as the reason that Magical Mystery Tour ended up being shown in the United States via closed circuit at some movie theaters 
and apparently it was only in Los Angeles, and it was in 1968. The reason it was shown in L.A. was to raise money for disc jockeys in Los Angeles who were on strike. I never knew that before. Other than that, it wasn't really seen in America for quite a long time. And also the reason that Magical Mystery Tour, when it was shown in England on Boxing Day 1967, why such a colorful film aired in black and white, it was explained that basically the only people in England at the time who had color TV in the first place were the Beatles and the Queen. So that was quite something. And we bought several of his books while we were there. There were a few books of his that we didn't have, including a book about Rubber Soul and Revolver that hadn't even been released yet. He had a few copies at the fest, so we snagged one of them. And I've been in the middle of reading it for a while now, really enjoying it. Um, I did stop reading it for a while because we just got the Revolver box set, and I've been really digging into that book. I just finished that book, so now I can resume the Bruce Spizer book. Something new-ish that they have at the fest now is an ashram, which I gotta say, I was surprised that they did not have going back to the beginning of the fest in 1974, but it's only been in recent years that they had it. I think Mark and Carol's daughters were the ones who arranged it. Uh, one of the daughters is now going by the name Tilly for some reason. I don't understand that, but hey, whatever. Um, but the daughters put this ashram together and they have Beatles yoga. Lisa was going to go on Sunday morning, but I think she just wanted to sleep instead. Also, they had a session about transcendental meditation. Now, I am not a fan of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi at all. Um, personally, I think he was a shyster. And right now I am thinking of the Lord that by law, the dead cannot be libeled. So Maharishi's family cannot sue me for saying that. But I really think he was a shyster. But at the same time, people who practice transcendental meditation swear that it works. We figured, hey, it wouldn't hurt to just go in on this one session. It turned out to be a sales pitch for one of the local TM centers, I think, up in Evanston, Illinois. I told Lisa, if there's one little hint of Maharishi worship, we are getting up and walking out. But there wasn't a hint of Maharishi worship. He was mentioned, of course, as he should have been, because he founded the, the whole TM thing. But the lady was simply talking about uh, the meditation, how much it costs, Pretty expensive, actually. She said uh, it's based on your income level, but we don't do a check. We don't look at your tax information or anything. It's on the honor system, but still it was pretty expensive. She talked about the benefits of TM versus uh, non-mantra meditation and all this. And, uh, you know, it sounded interesting, but it didn't sound interesting enough for me to look further into it. And when we walked away from the, uh, the ashram after the presentation, uh, Lisa said, hey, let's go sit down and talk. And she said, yeah, no. <laughs> she said, hey, it works for some people and that's great. You know, I we both agree we would never tell anybody not to do it. But she said, it sounds like the same kind of thing that I learned at the Shivananda Center for about $30. <laughs> so... Needless to say, we didn't follow up. We're not learning Transcendental Meditation. I'm not closed-minded about it. I just don't feel that paying several hundred dollars for two sessions was necessarily worth it. But <laughs> whatever floats your boat, floats your boat. But the thing that I remember most, really, about this Fest for Beatles fans that we went to in August 
was really just the people that we talked to. On Saturday night, we just kind of walked around after all the main festivities ended, and we hung out with a, with a small group of people and just, you know, get, talking to them, getting to learn about them and what their lives are like and everything. It was just so much fun. And I had my acoustic 12-string with me, so of course we sang a few songs, and uh, we did the same thing again Sunday night and met up with pretty much the same group of people as well. And uh, it was a lot of fun just socializing. And that's really, I guess, what the fest is all about, getting to meet people with the same interests who love the Beatles as much as we do, and just learning not just about how we're all the same, but also how we're all different, yet we all have this one thing in common that brings us together. And what else can I say? Is it something we're going to do again next year? I don't know. I don't know. But Despite that it's not quite the same fest that we knew and love back in the late 90s and the early 2000s, I don't know. I don't know. We might go again. We might not. But I guess what it is, is it's what you make of it. You find your own way of enjoying it, and you enjoy it. I guess I'm done talking about enjoying the fest, and now I'm going to go back to that new revolver box set and enjoy it some more. Wow, that I've been on this Beatles kick with the Revolver Box set, The Fest, the Revolver Rubber Soulbrook by Bruce Spizer, and wow, I suddenly forgot that there's a brand new Beach Boys box set coming out uh, covering uh, 1972 and 73 that I'm pretty excited about. I hope I can transition into that pretty smoothly. Maybe it's a good thing that it was delayed till December. It was supposed to be out in November. But <laughs> anyway, friends, that was episode 42. Thanks for uh, hanging in there with me. What else can I say but other than the usual thank yous, of course, to my wonderful wife, Lisa, for putting up with me and for uh, helping me in so many ways. Uh, thank you to my former and current employers for being amazing. And thank you to the Lapidos family for every year putting on a nice Beatles celebration in New Jersey and outside of Chicago. And just thank you, of course. Did I already thank you all? Um, anyway, thank you again, uh, dear listener, for listening to this podcast. And um, I think I might have dropped in a few pieces of uh, copyrighted material. And I just want to disclaim that uh, if I did, it was simply for commentary, for demonstration purposes, and copyright infringement is not intended. Uh, just a reminder that you can go to the show notes on schnookpodcast.com, or as I like to call it, the online bibliography. You can follow me on social media. Uh, there's a autobiography of a schnook Facebook page, and you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and if all goes according to plan, co-host using the tag schnookpodcast. Am I going to be on Mastodon? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that sucker out. Um, but I'm still on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and of course co-host, assuming that my verification goes through on that. But in the meantime, as I like to tell my listeners every episode, the good goes around. And hopefully the next episode of this podcast will go around um, a little bit sooner than this one did. All the best, my friends. Except for the times my life... Sharth! I needed a day to myself to just... Well, it says leer my head, but I'm pretty sure it means clear my head here. Uh, yeah, I made a typo in my notes here.